Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. Candice Carty Williams' novel Queenie compellingly charts a year in the life of a 25-year-old black woman, Queenie Jenkins, as she navigates life, love, family, friendship, money, bad dates, sex, mental health, social media, work pressures, race, politics, and, well, London. Queenie is a wonderful creation, funny, clever, unforgettable, and for me, most notably, brimful of heart. She has captured the imaginations of countless readers. The book was the highest earning debut hardback novel in the UK last year. It was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award and is now out in paperback. Candice, like her eponymous heroine, is a trailblazer, no question. That trail, in many respects, started here, at Lewisham Library in South London. Let's go inside and hear more about that with Candice, but also Lewisham Library Operations Officer Chris Moore and Rachel New, Outreach Officer for Lewisham Libraries. Candice, thank you so much for joining us in Lewisham Library, and Rachel and Chris, thank you both too. Candice, when we asked you where you wanted to meet, of all the libraries and of all the bookshops in the world, you immediately chose Lewisham Library. Can you... um, Tell us why. I grew up in Streatham initially, and then we moved to Ladywell, which is just down the road, when I was around eight. And I got into reading in a big way, just because my childhood was quite a lonely one. And so books were sort of my saviour and my solace and all these worlds to escape into. And when I was at school, that was the same thing. So I spent a lot of time in the school library when I was in secondary school. When I was in secondary school, something happened that I actually really wasn't involved in genuinely, but a group of us were excluded and... My stepdad at the time said, you can leave the house when school begins and come home when school ends because you can't be here. And so I came to Lewisham Library every day, which was an amazing thing for me. And so I have a lot of feels because it was a really safe place when Mm. I didn't feel safe. And so you'd come here every day for that period and you continued to come here after that. Exactly. But I'd been coming before. I'd come here before, but I was sort of, I I mean, you know, who says to a child, like, go and just find somewhere to be the whole day. And luckily I I wasn't involved in any bad situations because the library was here. So you would be here all day and you'd be reading all day? I'd be reading all day. I was reading at the time one book a day and sometimes I would read two when I was here just because I read so quickly. I always have. And so it was amazing just to feel 
safe in this place because it does it still yeah. feels like a safe place and I remember when I was a child I'd always go past it in the car in the night time even when I wasn't going to be there in the day and see the Lewisham Library sign in lights and think it was the most incredible glamorous thing that Lewisham had to offer and so you yeah, have all the places that I thought I could go because you know like a child's mind is kind of like what do I do where do I go but immediately I was like that place is going to look after me mm. uh, yeah I like to say they're societies safe spaces yes i love the lights as well it's sort of carnegie always insisted that there be a light outside each of his libraries mm. the carnegie libraries let there be light and enlightenment as well and i love the lights in that sign because it looks kind of like it reminds me of the stage mirrors exactly, there's, exactly, kind of, there's a yeah. kind of glamour to it yeah. as well so i can imagine it felt like a bit of a beacon and you would read omnivorously, or were there, was it fiction, or can you remember any of the books? That Were there any that sort of struck a chord during that period, or, or even, you know, earlier or after at this library that really were influential for you? It was the, every Mallory Blackman book that I could find here, mm. any Jacqueline Wilson book, Judy Bloom also, and my nan was a real reader of Catherine Cookson books, and I didn't like those, but she also read Virginia Andrews books. And so I would read those. So I started with Flowers in the Attic at her house. And then I would find anything that I could of Virginia Andrews here. So my reading sort of jumped up in such a big way when I was younger. But I think that's the case, isn't it? You just always end up reading and watching stuff that's too old for you. It's kind of a great advertisement for exclusions. Which <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not sure no, I should be saying that. Yeah. But yeah, kudos. You use the time well. And Chris, maybe you could explain a little bit about the library. It's a, it's a pretty big place. It's a well-stocked, really um, welcoming place. And it's the building is 60s? That dates from the 60s? Yeah, 1960s. It actually just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Um, Happy birthday. Thank you. And in fact, I think round about the time Candice was sort of describing, it used to have a light sculpture as well. So lights used to swirl around the building and it was actually operated by a sort of wind mechanism. It was moving. So you would see the, the Lewisham Library in lights, as you've already said, and there were these lights that would actually go in bars down the building. So I think it really is a beautifully sighted building. And I think, as Candice has described, it's a sort of beacon. It, it welcomes people in. And it's been doing that for many years. And we are here for education, for culture, crucially, I think, for peace and quiet as well, when people need that sort of space to be able to sit and study, work, but also for, you know, getting the kids in and, and having all their activities as well. So it is a big building, and that's why we have so many floors, to sort of try and segregate those functions out a little bit. I think what you described as your sort of journey is music to my ears because that's what a library is here for it's basically to help people develop discover grow move on and you know you you've obviously gained a lot from that experience so absolutely what we're here for is what you've described yeah. Just to say, there's, I think there's something about where it's placed on the high street mm. as well that makes it, it's like before you get to the hustle and bustle of like big Lewisham and the shopping centre. And also when you leave, you're just like, OK, there it's it on is. A cor- it's, on the corner, it's on the corner and you, from a crossroads, you can see it from, you're sort yes. of coming at it from all different angles. You're, yeah, you're by the roundabout. The yeah. How is it coming back? Candies. Oh, how it is! It's weird. So when I was on the way here, I was going through Lady Well, and I was like, okay, yes, yeah, so and nothing has changed in all the years. So I live in, 
I've lived in many places since I lived in Lewisham. I would say that I'm a Blue Borough girl. I met someone once at a party and I was like, can you guess where I grew up? And he was like, you grew up in Lewisham, innit? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yes, I did. But yeah, it feels really nice to be back. But I'm, I think I'm probably one of the most nostalgic people I've ever met. So it really feels very... I will probably cry on the way home. They don't do nostalgia like they used to. No. So, you yeah, know, it's amazing to be back and also to be back as someone who's like... I guess as an author. Yeah. And which I'm sort of trying to still get used to, but it feels like quite a nice thing. So you worked in journalism and then publishing. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about Queenie? You've had this incredible success and congratulations. And it is a fantastic read and she's an amazing character. But can you talk a little bit about what compelled you to write Queenie and where Queenie sprang from? Of course. I guess... You know, I read so much when I was growing up. And when I was in my sort of teens, there was a lot of young adult fiction that I saw myself in. So Mary Blackham was amazing for that, as many other authors too. But when I got to, I guess, my early 20s, I was like, oh, I'm not really seeing myself as much. And that is a real problem because you start to feel invisible. If you're not seen by society, then you're just kind of finding yourself in the pockets that you do see yourself. And so when I was seeing black women in... TV and film, these, they're all, the depictions are all these sexy or sassy or strong women. And I was like, oh, I don't really fit into any of those brackets of what a person should be. And so then you end up being like, well, what is my identity? And so I was like, okay, so maybe we need more fiction like this. And I was working in publishing at the time and was sort of always on the hunt for new voices. And you'd founded The Guardian and Fourth State. BAME short story prize, right? Exactly. And that was why. So I was like, okay, let's get some more voices in and let's, because I know that lots of writers, having met them and spoken to them, just at events, before I did any book stuff, as in being an author, um, they didn't really understand the process. So I'd say, you know, have you got an agent? And they'd be like, what's an agent? And, you know, an agent is the person who says to an editor who's going to acquire a book, oh, okay, well, you know, this is to your taste. You should read it, you should buy it, you should publish it. And if these writers don't know how to get their stories to agents, then there's a problem. And so I thought, okay, let's cut the agent out and let's get, lots of agents were annoyed, um, <laughs> and let's do a prize so that people could just submit their story straight to us. And even if someone hasn't won the story, then at least we have a pool of writers and we can continue to grow that pool and we can look at all these amazing mm. stories and potentially publish them. And so I did that and things were happening and it was really great. But I was like, okay, it's not happening fast enough. And so I was like, oh, how about you just write a book? Which sounds really simple. No. <laughs> so I went away and I did that. I applied to a writer's retreat that Jojo Moyes was running. And I remember, I think the day before I got an email to say that I was accepted onto it. I was like, I haven't heard anything for a couple of months. I'm assuming someone else has got it. And then the next day it was like, oh, do you want to come and do it? One of those emails that changes your life. Yeah, exactly. And so I went and, and did that. And as I was driving there, I borrowed my friend's car and I drove all the way to this house which is I think three hours away and I hadn't driven since I passed my tests but I made it <laughs> and thank goodness but I got there and I, her husband greeted me and said you know like this is where you're going to be staying this is if you need anything let me know Jojo's going to be back in a bit and I said oh I don't know how to thank you because I hadn't been in a place like that before like it was so far from London and it was just peaceful and there was so much green around and obviously I've, I've been in South London all my life apart from the three years when I was at university in Brighton and so I was like I don't really know what to do mm-hmm. or how to be in this like space like I was like so quiet like I'm used to like I can hear so much noise yeah. now yeah, yeah. and we grew up near the hospital and so there was there was always sirens. So I was always like, there was always the world, something. Sort of urban exactly, world, yeah. exactly. So I said, uh, you know, I don't know how to thank you. And he was like, oh, just write a bestseller. 
And I was like, oh, uh, easy. Okay. <laughs> okay, Charles, that's what I'll do. And I did so. But I, I sat down and I just wrote and I ended up writing, I think, 8,000 words. But I didn't plan any of it. I didn't, I was just kind of like, my main thing that I was thinking about as I was driving was like, what do you want to say? And what I wanted to say was that black women contain multitudes and that we have different stories and different ways of being and we're not all strong and we can't endure everything and weather everything. And we go through lots of stuff and we go through the stuff that everyone else goes through, but people see us differently. So that will always change how we receive ourselves and how we're received and how we navigate things. And so that was really it. That was a jumping off point. Wow. And so it then sort of poured, I understand it was relatively fast in terms yes. of the first draft Six of the novel. Which is quick. Queenie just sort of poured out. Yeah. Well, I was kind of like, who, I was just like, who, and it wasn't, who have you got? Like, so it wasn't planned in terms of you hadn't outlined and sort oh, of no. plotted and, no, no, as no. some authors do. No it's, way. But you can really, as a reader, that's part of the joy, I think, as well, is it just the energy and the rhythm and the drive, but also the honesty and the sort of rawness and the dynamism is all there, and that must have been stemming from that process. Yeah. And you were writing, presumably, while you were obviously working your day job. Yeah, so I would leave work on a Friday, I would go and get my food shopping, and then I would go and sit in this horrible studio in Streatham that I was living in, and I would not come out until Monday morning, go back to work. And so I did that for months, and all my friends were like, okay, well, we guess you're fine. And the foundation was laid on that retreat. Exactly. So you had the sort of cornerstone and then you built out from there exactly. during that, that period. Yeah, every weekend. Wow. And did, did you enjoy, I mean, it was obviously sort of almost, as these things can be, it must have been a bit kind of like a trance almost, or, you know, mm-hmm. do you look back and you think that was a very happy or enjoyable process or was it tough? Because it's a very honest, raw story mm-hmm. and it's a fictional book, but it must have been quite personally exhausting or challenging along the way. I just loved it. Yeah, I really good. loved it. I really just sat and it was such escapism because, you know, I was working a full-time job and, you know, that's what you're always tired. And, you know, life is just doing what it's doing and those things are quite hard. But to escape into writing is, like, always the way that... It's like escaping into reading. I can just shut mm. everything else out. And so I loved it. That was, like, the that was when I felt happiest when I was writing. And, and remains the case, now. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> most of the time. Because I guess there was no... Well, when I was writing it, there was no pressure because I was like well I want to write it and like what I've achieved will be to write have written a book I didn't know anything would happen with it when you're writing your first book you don't and then when you're contractually bound to write a second you know what (laughs) you have to do and so yeah so it was really wonderful time for me and I always felt very happy and so yeah it's a different thing now but it was I think that shows in the sort of exuberance of the prose and well it's also like I think because I was younger so I wrote when I was 26 and I'm 30 now I was obviously like just a bit like more confident back then as well because some of the stuff that people tell me that's in the book, I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe I wrote that. <laughs> and so like now, in the second, the one I'm writing now, I'm like, I'm, I'm like pairing everything back, and I'm like, no, it's okay, you're allowed to. But yeah, the first one, I was like, there's an energy to it because I was just kind of like, I could just say what I wanted to say yeah, yeah. and not think about it. I was at an event and a girl came up to me and she was really upset, and I was like, are you okay? And she was like, well, you know, your book's really traumatic, and I was like, yeah. And she was like, yeah, but it was really painful. And I was like, oh, God, I'm really sorry. Because I think when I was writing it, I just hadn't considered that someone could read it and take that much pain from it. Yeah, I mean, it it is a tough read in a sense in terms of it's very, very funny and incredibly charming. But then I was quite struck by, you know, on page eight, 
Queenie, and it's a first-person narrative, Mm -hmm. but Queenie confides right up front that she is not a person who ever felt particularly safe. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of, for me anyway, immediately set that, and also, of course, the the manner of the opening. Maybe you should tell listeners or people who haven't read it where we start, because it's in terms of she's having an examination right up front, and it's intrusive, invasive, full-on sort of opening in, in terms of circumstances as well. It opens in Lewisham Hospital, so lovely. I was in the hospital and she is having an examination. I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of a spoiler, but she's had a miscarriage and she doesn't realise it. And I started it with her having an examination of that nature because I really wanted immediately readers to understand this black woman is vulnerable because I don't think that happens ever. I think that black women have always had to be strong and to carry loads of things and, as I said, to weather everything. And I think for me it was like, OK, but I just want this, I want people to understand that even physically, immediately, this girl is in a position of vulnerability and we're going to stay there with her for most of it, most of the book. Yeah, and we do. I mean, you put her through the ringer, but she's such a strong character in many ways, obviously vulnerable too, and there's a mental health element. But she moves through these challenges and she's sort of a catastrophist as well. And I I know you've talked about her having a quarter-life crisis, which is great and is something that isn't often explored, something else as well as... Queen is a black 25-year-old protagonist woman, but also the quarter-life circumstances mm. and the social pressures on top of everything else that she has to put up with. Uh, Roxanne Gay has written that it's an amazing novel about what it means to be a black girl whose world is falling apart and needs to find the strength to put it back together, mm. which that is lovely. Amazing, it's yeah. really, really, I mean, you've got some incredible quotes, but that one stood out for me as well and sums up the sort of strength that Queenie brings to the read. I think it's also the strength that comes from being vulnerable rather than this upfront ability to just navigate everything. And that's what I wanted to show through her character. It's that whole thing about it being darkest before the dawn. Like you just have to get to that place Mm. in order to be able to see things and bring yourself out of them. Yeah. And like I say, you wrote it in a sort of burst of Mm. creativity, but was it tough to get the thing finished and out there? And also I'm cognizant that you're working within publishing and you have a certain persona you'd reached a fairly high level in the profession marketing exec was it tough to then put it out there or what was that process like so I got an agent but through I hadn't met my agent before but I'd followed her on Twitter she's amazing but I did everything through the proper channels because even though I worked in publishing I was like I want to do this properly and so we did an edit together which was really great because I really, I mean, I quite enjoy the editing process. I don't really, I'm not scared of it. I think that things like that, because you just work on it by yourself, there could be an understanding that it's just done and it's perfect, but I think these things are still collaborative yeah. and they need to have other eyes and voices because you're so in it that you can't see what isn't making it the best thing it could be. But then she pitched the novel to a load of editors and there was like a solid week of rejection where hmm. loads of editors were like, we can't see where it would be placed. We don't have any books like it, so we don't know how we'd publish it. We don't and have any books like it. Normally they, they well, might say, we have right? too many books yeah, like it, we can't publish think. it. And I think what was my favourite? My favourite one was, we don't have any black editors and it would require one. So, wow. um, yeah, it's not for us. So there was lots of stuff in there. Said, yeah, it was just, a, a, my agent was like, it's fine, because like when it's published and everything's happening, you won't even remember those people and I was like, oh, I uh-huh. will, and I do. <laughs> and so that was quite hard, but I guess, you know, but then it was fine because, you know, it did get published, and I work yes. with such an amazing team. My editor's incredible, 
and I really like her as a person and an editor. And I wouldn't have worked with anyone who I didn't trust because I trust her because she's so funny and because she really gets the story and because the book is so... It's not led by humour, but it's such a big part of it and it needed it. And I don't think I could have had an editor who wasn't, who couldn't make me laugh. Yeah, and Rachel, you were saying before we sat down and started talking with Candice about your reading experience and you'd marked all the parts that you found funny, which is, you know, almost every other page, there's... There's a gag or, you know, it's hilarious, but in that sense, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was just telling Ben about the the bit where Queenie spends two hours telling her dates what racism means and why black lives matter, and that should not happen on the first date. (laughs) And then there's the bit where she says to somebody, don't forget to wash your sheets and your penis. (laughs) (laughs) That is a spaced quote. So I can't take credit for that because I love the TV show Spaced. Yeah. But I had to get it in there somehow. Spaced was just enjoyed its 25th anniversary. 21st. 21st? Yeah. Okay. I was at the screening event. Oh, I love nice. it. I love nice. it that I much. Love Spaced, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And so then the book comes out and it's this phenomenon. Without design, you'd identified in publishing that there was a gap in terms of voices that you could recognise. But Queenie just sort of storms into that gap and just it's a phenomenon how was that obviously very pleasurable I imagine and rewarding but such a big success it must for your debut as well that brings with it all sorts of unexpected pressures I imagine it was great I mean it's really hard not to obviously I was very grateful and I'm still very grateful but it is really overwhelming so I was talking to Bernadine Evaristo about this I was like I just find it really hard because I'm quite shy and so having to do events the first event I did was the showcase for my publishers and I had to go out and talk to an audience of 1,500 people. Wow. And I did not sleep the night before. I didn't eat the day before. I think I cried myself into oblivion on the way there. And then I just had to do this thing and I was like, what's happened? You know, because you just go from... Yeah. I mean, writing in general, you go from just being solitary and quiet in your house or in a library or borrowing someone's like office for the day and then you're just in front of all these people you had seen it though from the other position of the marketing exec yes representing the authors so you sort of at, at least you knew the world but of course that doesn't necessarily prepare you for actually the spotlights on you suddenly and 1500 people looking at you i get it it's almost no, I mean, it's not harder but it's just it's different because you are supporting loads of authors and being like yeah okay this is gonna be great this is what you need to do and then when it's you suddenly and you still recognise that world, it's still terrifying. For the, It's kind of worse for the eyes to then be on you, who's always been yeah. in the background, and as a writer in the background. I mean, I really just love the writing. And I do the events because I think they're important, because I want to talk to people. And my favourite part of the event is when it's over and I can do the Q&A and talk mm. to all the people that wait and want to like have a chat about what they want to do or what they want to write or ask me questions about where the character came from or what she means or what this thing meant and like why haven't you done this properly? So that's my favourite part of it is talking to the people but that whole thing about being on a stage is terrifying. And if your natural disposition also is yeah. shy or yes. not extrovert in not that slightly. sense, I guess we're all a little bit extrovert and introvert in different measure as well. I think you just kind of have to... I think there's an element of me just having to be like, you've just got to act now. And so just having to put on, like, my... Performance. Perform on the stage. And that's fine. And then come off. And then I immediately go to sleep. And is it getting easier? No. No, Okay. No. I mean, it's still... (laughs) But I still, I guess, I'm less nervous. I'm not doing the crying anymore, which is good. But there is always... You're getting a little bit of sleep before the... Some, bigger yeah. events, bigger events. <laughs> but some, it's a kind of in a different way because I get stressed about everything else 
And I'm like, I didn't do that. And then she said, I need to talk to that person. I need to reply to that. And then I do the event and I'm like, oh, that's all fine. You know, it's just kind of like the, the stress just moves into different parts of my brain. Mm. But it's just one of those things. But again, I just love talking to the people about the work. And what are the most rewarding responses you've had or interactions with readers? Because it is a very meaningful book and you have, you are a bit of a trailblazer. I don't mean that in a glib or sycophantic way. It's just a fact, you know. But it also is a book that speaks to not just black women, but again, the quarter-life crisis element speaks to all sorts of people in that time of life, women, obviously more than men. But what are the most rewarding responses that you've had? I have hundreds of messages like a month from black women who are like, I read this and I connected with this and I felt less alone. And that was really important to me. But I also, I remember one of the first messages I got was this younger white woman who messaged me to say that she had a mixed-race daughter because her partner was black and that she just assumed that because her daughter was half-white, her daughter would just navigate the world the same way that she did. But she was like, reading your book, I understand that there is a difference Mm. and that she will come up against stuff that I wasn't familiar with and didn't understand. But now I know that I have to sort of, I think she said I have to give her the fortitude to be able to deal with things that I have never had to deal with. And that was amazing for me. Because it was like, yeah, like things are, well, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with being like, yeah, there's a difference there. It's about accommodating that difference, understanding it. That's what it's about. And I got a message from, my Twitter DMs were open because when I worked in publishing still, people would sort of ask me for advice about how to get into publishing or how to do certain things. So and you were still uh, working in publishing when the book came out? No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, I think, two months right juggling the release and the yeah. day job still yeah, yeah. which was <laughs> interesting yeah it was I was so tired all the time <laughs> but my Twitter DMs were open they're not anymore sorry everyone people still DM on Instagram though there was a message from this I saw his like, avatar it was this white guy who looked kind of like sort of like an American dude bro and I saw that he was American and I was like oh god he's come to like say something horrible and he said hey like I know this book isn't technically for me but I read it and I had to take some time out of work because of my mental health and reading your book has made me realise that it's okay and that it's not just happened to me because I thought I was the only person this ever happened to. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't realise that people... I guess when you just do this thing, that, as you say, it's all just been a sort of, like, big burst of, like, Russian storytelling and energy and being like, this is what I want to say. But I think probably I hadn't really stopped to think about how people would actually receive it how everyone might receive it and then sort of realizing that was really overwhelming in a good in a good way yeah and like any great novel or poem or work of art you know you poured your heart and soul into it but then we as readers we put our own personal spins on it as soon as we pick it up and open it and take our own truths from it even though there are plenty of universal Mm -hmm. things in there as well as very specific socio political economic etc circumstantial things that Queenie has to deal with I was again struck at the right at the top in terms of your dedication which is to all the queenies out there you are enough trust me which is defiant and inspiring in equal measure and there must be a fair few queenies who still walk through this door downstairs I imagine Chris you must recognize queenie down in the library absolutely and if this can inspire those Queen is out there, then you've done a fantastic job. Working in a library, you know, you, you always want to feel that you are helping people, somehow 
to achieve something, something better in their lives maybe, or just the next stage in their development. But I think there's an awful lot of people who probably don't think they can ever get themselves out of whatever rut or situation they're in. So I think this story you know, is obviously going to be great help to all of those people. Thank you very much. Candice, your book sort of says it all, but what would you say to any listeners in Lewisham and further afield, but Lewisham who are experiencing what Chris is talking about and, you know, the challenges that Queenie or other kids here might face back in the day when you were excluded and found your way to the library. What would you say to any of them listening right now? I think I always operated under the illusion, it very much was an illusion, that I wasn't valid and that my life wasn't valid and my story wasn't valid. And even though our stories are valid in a literal sense, in that, yes, you can write a book about them, they're also valid in your existence. I think we all have something really special about us and that we are here and that we're doing what we can is enough. I mean, mainly, I just want people to understand that they are enough and that you don't have to be extraordinary or strong or spectacular or, like, you know, socially desirable to be the best person that you are. I think that you just are by virtue of being you. And I don't think enough people know that. And that's what I want people to understand. Mm. Well said. And I think also well said in the building that we're in, because if you walk into the library downstairs, the notice boards are awash with opportunities and reminders in different sort of pursuits and opportunities and initiatives that may enable people, whatever age they are, old and young, to see that or learn that about themselves. That's what libraries are partly all about. Absolutely. How much would you say Queenie herself, in terms of the fictional character, was born here in this library, or am I now sort of over-egging things? No, not at all. I think, like, you know, she's always been within me. She's not me, but there's definitely a part of her that was a part of me. And so her background is the same. Like, she grew up in Lewisham. I mean, mean, she grew up more in Lewisham than I did, so, you know, we're just doing artistic licence. But I think there is no way that she wouldn't have been that lonely child that I was and in the book you understand that but yeah I think this would be a safe space for her for sure she doesn't do enough work so she wouldn't do her work here but she would like it here (laughs) no she doesn't come in the novel here but maybe outside the novel she does um and what about your mates and friends from back home here around these parts and your family have have they responded to your amazing (laughs) success with the book they're quite good. My friends are really amazing. My friends are incredible. Um, her friends are pretty incredible, by the her way. Her friends are amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, her friends are really good. She has, this are, amazing, she has her yeah. corgis, as you call them. They're, they're more patient time. than my friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I have a really amazing set of friends who are very proud and very excited, but also they do more work to sort of like gas me up than I do. They're always like, look, there's your poster, look, there's your thing. And I'm always like, yeah, whatever. Like, it's just, it's my job. Like, that's my job and I don't want to talk about my job. Like, we're here hanging out. But they do a lot to celebrate me and I don't really do that. And my family, they don't really, I don't think anyone, my family's actually read it. Uh, My nan, haven't read it? No. 
which is fine. My nan calls it my little project. And the other day when I but why because I'm now the Guardian Review books editor books. What am I? Books the columnist. columnist. Yeah. That's it, not editor. My God, I've given yeah. myself a give myself a promotion. <laughs> but my nan called me up. She said, I've just seen that. That's good. She said, When the ancestors look down at us, at least we can show our face. And I was like, Yeah, wow. all right. So um that is her. So my family don't really they're just kind of like, Yeah, do your job. But you know, it's okay, it's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I should say also, we're looking at copies of the book and the paperback is out imminently or by the time this podcast is released, will be out. And the cover itself, I don't know who designed it, but hats off and literally hats off because it's Queenie's hair, but it's absolutely beautiful. And also the colours. So I luckily found some early release paperbacks today. There was a table at Woodstones of them where I passed by and... They're beautiful colours as well. And I suddenly, I'd never had this before. I had this moment where I had to pick what colour yeah. I was going to go for, which I've never had with a book, but they're stunning. And my publishers were like... They did a great we're job. Really gonna, yeah, they're like, really going to go for this in a way that I didn't think... Because I worked in publishing and I was like, they're doing a lot of stuff that I've never seen before. Yeah, but it, is quite innov- yeah. it is quite innovative and it is eye-catching. But also really beautiful, actually. The hair, it's quite fine, right down to very fine sort it's of a, it's strands of hair. It's an illustrator called Jarell Saunders who does all these beautiful illustrations of black women's hair. Um, my American editor found it. And, and of course, Queenie's hair such a feature. is a feature. But also she's on the cover, she's faceless, which was really important to me because I think it's just that thing where she could be any of us. Yes, every woman really... in many ways, yeah. Exactly. So I have to ask, this was such a transformative year for you personally, professionally, but also with Bernadine Ivaristo winning the Booker, Mm -hmm. Stormzy starting an imprint. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Mallory Blackman, Noughts and Crosses has been adapted. Uh, Much excitement, my kids, amongst many others, will be looking forward to seeing that. Stormzy's in it, I understand. But where do you, you know, it's not that long ago that you launched that short story award Mm. initiative as a publisher pre your becoming an author Mm. where do you see the landscape now because it feels like last year was a bit of a game changer in sort of correcting things a bit within Mm. publishing and the broader reading sort of consciousness of this country would that be fair do you think I think so and I think that you know I've seen and understood that these things go in cycles and that you get these initiatives and you get these big bursts of activity around diversifying reading. But, you know, that goes away after a year. But I don't think it's going away because I think that people are demanding to see change now. And I think that social media has really helped that because social media calls out every institution, every paper, every TV channel that does anything wrong. I think that's amazing because it's something that hasn't happened before. People are actually being taken to task now. I think that what we're doing, many of us are laying the foundations for what should be a more representative society in many ways. Mm. And I don't know if that's happened before because initiatives are really great, but I think, you know, the work is to be sustained and it is hard work, but I think that everyone is committed. But it's irritating because people that have to do these things, like me, like Stormzy, it's not our... (laughs) Like me, like Stormzy, you know, my mate. (laughs) No, but, you know, it's not our jobs. We do it because we know it needs to be done. You know, Stormzy's a musician. I was a marketing person. But you see these things and if you have the, I guess, if you've got the energy and you've got the drive, you just have to work to call out. And I think a lot more people have that. And I think when you see more people doing it, it gives you the energy to do it yourself. So I think that there's a really long way to go. But I think that if we lay the groundwork, 
and, you know, make it so that it's like fertile land for like actual representative, I guess, redressing, then things could be good. And those 10 publishers who shall remain nameless who Mm. turned down Queenie are probably now saying, you know, where's our Queenie? Where's our Queenie? Yeah, no, I'm hearing this quite a lot. Yeah, Yeah. some imitator Queenies probably be in the pipeline. But, But, you know, I look forward to seeing those stories and that's what, you know, any young black author who is thinking about writing a book or has been signed after Queenie, they reach out to me and I always meet them for coffee. I don't drink coffee, but I have tea. And I make them buy me a tea. But we always have a chat about like what it's going to look like and, and what this could be and what they can do. So I think it's really important to do yeah. that. You know, I think it was also about saying to the industry, yeah, this book can sell. Yeah. Get more. Yeah. No, bravissima. And so that sort of begs the question, what's next out of curiosity or uh, is it a top secret project but queen is being adapted for tv right yeah that was a secret and it just got leaked so now everyone knows no it is out there that's not privileged um, information no, that's no. exciting and it does actually also should say anyone who hasn't read it yet will discover that it does sort of read very cinematically or certainly in terms of a tv show mm. the way you intercut the non-linear structure and the sort of flashbacks to her relationship with tom does lend itself, I would think, to an adaptation, although it would be a challenge. Are you writing so that? So I am writing it for the screen, which is actually really fun. I really like it. I like it in a different form. I used to work in film with my day job was screenwriters, so it's a very different sort of rhythm. Very different. But like yes. I said, I do think the, the blueprint is more than in many other novels. It, you do have some of it there. Yeah, no. So it's being adapted for the screen. I am writing it, which is a really great thing because I had lots of meetings about it and production companies were giving me different writers. But yeah. because the pool of black female writers is so small, I was saying, you know, what about this person who wrote this play? And it was like, yeah, OK, cool. Let's think about that. And then the production company I went with were like, you have to write it. And I was like, what? I hadn't considered that at all. Good and for them. Like, yeah. And they were like, no, that's kind of your job, right? Because then we'll just lose your voice. And I was like... Mm. Yeah, I guess. So I've been doing that. And it has been a really, you learn a lot about like stuff. But also it helps I watch every single TV show that has ever come out. There's a lot to watch. There's so much to watch. (laughs) And I watch it all, don't you worry. Because I stay in the house a lot more than I used to. So yeah, no, it's been a really enjoyable thing and really exciting. And the thing I'm looking forward to most though, the thing that kind of gets me through the sort of like weird screenwriters, writers block, which I never had with novel writing, is the idea of like casting and music. And just actually how it's going to, like, yes. jump out at people. So that's what keeps me, like, entertained. It's really exciting. Yeah, thank you. And I have to ask, because the podcast is library and bookshop-based, and I, I hate to sort of drag things down a little bit, but, you know, we talked about all sorts of positive developments over the last year, but equally there have been, over the last 10 years or so, since austerity really hit, all kinds of problems for libraries... And it's fantastic that we're here in this amazing landmark library in Lewisham. It's very lively downstairs and vibrant, fantastic offering for the community. But what do you make of the nationwide sort of scourge that we've had to deal with over the last decade or so? Bearing in mind, again, that time of your life when the li- this library provided such sanctuary... I think when I started hearing about library closures a few years ago, like a sort of mourning, like it hit very personally because I knew how much libraries had saved me. I felt really heartbroken for all of the children who wouldn't be able to go to this as a safe place. 
and who wouldn't be able to experience reading. You know, like reading is such a privilege. Being able to buy a book is a huge privilege. Not everyone has that. I couldn't afford to buy books all the time. That's why I spent all my time in libraries. You know, I couldn't be the author that I was without having read so much. And I read so much because I could read books for free. Yeah. You know, but I think the problem is that the people who are doing these things are just not in these positions of understanding how impactful it is on so many levels because they don't have those lives. They have the schooling where everything is available for them and then they have jobs where things are available for them and some people don't have that. And, you know, like when you go and look in the library and you see, yeah, some people are there just to use the internet and that's fine because not everyone, you know, like job applications, people are like, why don't you apply for that job? And it's like, well, not everyone has the internet. That is the reality of things. And I think that, you know, think it's not a problem until it's yours. And I think that there are too many people working in positions of power that don't understand that and don't have the lens to see that not everything is available and accessible. And so library closures, I couldn't and can't believe it. It's very painful, it's very heartbreaking because libraries are obviously hubs for learning, but also they are safe places and also they give worlds to people who can't just go and buy them. Mm -hmm. So it, it hits me on many different levels. Yeah. Well, it's great that we can be here today and celebrate Lewisham Absolutely. Library. One uh, of the best libraries. Yes, which stands... Ever. Yeah, stands proud and the, the lights are still twinkling on at night yes providing a beacon for other budding queenies i hope so and authors out there and again because this is a booky podcast without meaning to pry or be too nosy i do like to ask guests and that's all our guests how they choose to organize their shelves of books and whether you are quite a regimented sort of catalogued sort of person or whether it's all sort of colour-coded like your beautiful novels, covers or... It's chaos. Everything about me is sort of like quiet chaos. I got some bookshelves built the other day, which is a really exciting thing for me. They are pink because it's my favourite colour. My novel is pink. But I got some shelves and then I basically just shove all my books in so they just look nice. Right. But there's no colour coding, but it's just like, you don't want to have like two yellow books next to each other. You want to like space that out, you know? So it's like... A nice catalogue, but like looks good rather than there's no order. There's no order to anything in my life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I turn to the librarian, Chris. Presumably, um, there's some order uh, to your uh, books. I'm afraid I am a typical librarian. And every, <laughs> <laughs> everything is strict A to Z. Scrupulously alphabetical. Yeah, Chris is looking stressed right now. Yeah. <laughs> An attempt even at the Dewey Decimal classification oh, wow. for the non fiction. Of that's my, quite hardcore. Yeah, yeah, it is. So um, <laughs> that's pretty much the way I do it at home. It's more more categorization than uh, classification, but the fiction's got to be A to Z, and if anything's out of place... It would be pretty maddening. It's stressful, yeah. 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 Rachel? I like my guests, when they come to visit me, to be able to browse the books and generate some interesting discussions. So I try to have some philosophy books and ah. all sorts of different topics, psychology as well as fiction, so that people can just pick up a book and for it to lead to a conversation. So I think I like to have a variety of... I have lots of bookshelves in different rooms in my flat and I like to have a variety on each of the bookshelves so that people can then see what represents me. So it's important that my bookshelves represent everything that I like about books. Different parts of your brain, yeah. yeah. I'm and personality. Yeah, I'm going nice. to borrow that from you. Thanks, Rachel. It's quite telling what they should, your guests, <laughs> your friends should reach for, just as I went for the red cover, although I was torn about the yellow and the green. and the, yeah. they're, they're really beautiful. And continuing this, if it's all right, Candice, 
Would you mind browsing the shelves, the fabled, I would precious to. shelves of Lewisham Library for another spin all these years later and choose a book yes. and see what you gravitate towards today? Absolutely. It can be an old friend or a new discovery. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. Non-fiction. Non-fiction, which is quite um, nicely categorised. It's very nicely categorised. Chris's fingerprints are detectable yeah, on this. This makes me feel happy. <laughs> <laughs> so many amazing books here. I worked on this. I worked on Stamp from the beginning before I left, which is the definitive history of racism, like, from the very beginning. And also, I love Stuart Life Backwards by Alexander Masters. I finished that and I cried for about I ten really. days. You should. I should. See, this is the, the great thing about doing these browsers is that I get the recommendations. That's one of my favourite books. I know it's of amazing. it, but yeah, I should read it. Feminists Don't Wear Pink, another great one. This is such a well-stocked library. Although you're a feminist and you, pink's your favourite colour. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, it's, it's in Other Lies. Sorry, I should have finished the, right. um, <laughs> should have finished there you the go. title. Yeah, so we're hovering around sociology and politics. Riot City, protest and rebellion in the capital. This is my choice. I think this wow. is my choice. This is not something that you've come across before? No, never. But I think it's always good to understand... I mean, riot culture is really interesting, right? Mm. And I think when you try to capture anything like riots or protest in art, it's always a bit tricky because like riots and protests, they're just fueled by energy. Mm. And I don't think it's easy really to put that on the page. But I'd like to know more about them and where they came from. So yeah, this Sounds is my choice. Good. Riot City by Clive Bloom. Thanks, Clive. Nice one. Thank you kindly for listening to Ex Libris. If you found that conversation with Candice half as fun, absorbing and inspirational as I did, then please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you tune in. That way, you'll help us champion libraries and indie bookshops. To see Lewisham Library, including those famous lights around its entrance that captured young Candice's imagination, visit our website, exlibrispodcast.com. There you can put faces to names as well as explore the podcast's other episodes. You can also get updates on social media, not to mention win a signed copy there of Candice's brilliant hit novel, Queenie. It's a red cover on that particular copy, as you ask. Find me at that Ben Holden on Twitter and Instagram. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself. Its music is composed and performed by Adam Pleath. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Lightbulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine. <laughs>